listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belaboured episode 203. In this episode, we're talking to Barb Jacobson of Basic Income UK about why the debate over a universal basic income is more relevant than ever in the face of a global pandemic. But first, the news. Childcare providers are some of the hardest working, lowest paid, and least appreciated members of our workforce, especially now that people are relying heavily on daycare because schools have been shuttered by the pandemic. In California, childcare workers have voted overwhelmingly to form a union. It's a long-awaited political breakthrough, which was facilitated by the recent passage of a state law that specifically gives collective bargaining rights to this sector. And it could not have come at a better time for the tens of thousands of workers employed as nannies and home-based daycare providers. The pandemic has forced a quarter of the state's childcare centers to close, and yet they remain chronically under-resourced because they rely on inadequate public subsidies, which low-income families need, in turn, to be able to afford professional childcare. Now, childcare workers hope to be able to bargain with the state for fair pay, expanded services, and better working conditions, which will hopefully help improve the quality and availability of care for working-class families, too. I spoke with Rosa Carreño, a family child care provider in San Jose, about what the unionization means for her and for her profession. My name is Rosa Carreño. I've been a provider for 20 years in San Jose. Uh, shortly after I became a provider, I uh, got involved with the union because of um, some uh, issues with the uh, parents and the children, you know, not being, um, their situation not being too uh, clearly uh, with some of the agencies, just issues of, you know, for them to sign up and, uh, you know, having uh, approved childcare and then all of a sudden it was not no longer approved, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, the parents turning in paperwork and the agency saying, well, we don't have the paperwork, so you're going to lose your childcare, that type of stuff. So I, you know, whenever I saw issues of, that I felt something was not right, I would uh, raise my voice <laughs> and speak up for the for the parents and the children. Um, so after that, I just became involved because um, in, in our profession, we really are by ourselves uh, with no, really no... Um, guarantees of, you know, continuing receiving children or, um, you know, just different situations where we, we were alone. So I, I felt that at the time we had um, uh, to make some changes, but in order for those to happen, we had to come together and, uh, and be just one voice, you know, and talk to the different people in, in our community and, uh, speak to the parents, speak for the parents, um, just let other others know uh, of our situation. Um, so for, for many years, for 17 years, you know, that's basically what we did. Uh, just talk to, to different people and gather support from uh, elected officials, parents, community members, and making calls to other providers to encourage them to become members of the union. It was um, a small group, and then it would it would you know grow, and 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 people would walk out again because we for for many many years we didn't see a lot of progress. 
And then we had two governors that did not, you know, uh, were uh, willing to to hear our concerns, you know, and to to make change with us. Um, so we had to endure those two those two governors, and then uh, finally we we have a, a governor that, you know, uh, heard what we were talking about, and uh, you know, finally signed the AB three seven eight. The, the bill which gives us the, the right to to have a voice and a seat at the table. What is your job like now? I mean, what is a typical day for you? How many hours do you work? Uh, how many kids are you caring for at one time? Okay, well, I, I have a large license which uh, allows me to take care of 14 children at a time. I take care from um, newborns to a day before 14 years of age. Right now, I have, uh, see, my youngest is four months old, and my oldest is 11. Um, and uh, it, my hours are from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. Uh, that's just, you know, from the time children arrive and, and leave. But we have extra hours before we open our doors and after we close, we have a lot of paperwork, a lot of cleaning, a lot of, you know, organization to do preparation for the next day. It's, it's just an ongoing, um, ongoing job that we have. It's, it's, a, a, it's a, a hard job, but it's, a, a, it's something that I love to do. You know, working with children is just, just seeing the progress is just so rewarding for me. How have things changed uh, since this whole pandemic started? Are you needing well, to take more precautions, I guess? Yes, a lot more. Uh, we, we, you know, we were already taking precautions, but, the, you know, the additions have been the masks and, the, you know, the following the distance, the social distancing, uh, you know, deep cleaning and disinfecting uh, more often. Uh, more frequent hand, hand washing, uh, providing, you know, uh, sanitizing, uh, you know, uh, moving uh, activities outside, you know, having more outside time with the children um, to allow for fresh air, uh, just just uh, keeping uh, siblings in, in groups, uh, you know, continue uh, eat, uh, teaching, but in smaller groups. Uh, farther apart, you know, from each other, um, just um, just different things that that we think might are are going to help us, you know, not get sick. So there's a lot of providers that have become infected with the virus. So there's a lot of them that have closed, uh, and they don't know. Some of them are not going to reopen. Others are thinking about reopening. Some have reopened. With uh, you know, with a lot of precautions. So the, you know, the enrollment for some of them went went uh, very low, and for others it was completely. So if the enrollment drops, uh, you know, you know we're gonna that the income is not gonna be there for us to 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 meet our obligations. So and and because many of us doing this type of uh, work, we don't have strong saving accounts, you know, 
uh, that would allow us to survive for indefinite time is something that we have been pushing for for a long time. So hopefully when we get a chance to, to sit down and, 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 and work out what we want to uh, negotiate, you know, hopefully we'll be able to accomplish uh, some of those things that we have been needing for so long. So right now, I mean, I, I guess when you're thinking in the long term, I mean, how how would you like this industry to uh, change now that you um, are able to form a union? Well, I'm hoping that once we have a contract, uh, again, we're, 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 our voice is heard. And with our voice, we are going to be able to demand respect, better pay, full benefits and full benefits for ourselves and family. You know, we we have um, we have been providing high quality care and education to the children of our state for many years. You know, we are, like I mentioned before, we are providing the guidance, stable environments and knowledge, um, you know, for the future leaders of our society. So during this crisis, we have continued to offer what schools have not been able to provide because they, they're all, you know, they, they all had to close down. So, you know, with that being said, uh, uh, now we, that we, that people know what we do uh, and how valuable our services are, you know, it, it just is very easy to, to see that our profession is essential all the time, not just, you know, and, and times of crisis. If I if I'm not here for my families, you know they uh, some of them might might not be able to go to work, you know. So so everybody is affected. If if we're not well taken care of and we don't have what we need, you know, it's not just us that that our world that is affected. It's everybody. We all depend on each other. So. We all deserve uh, to have our needs um, taken care of. You know, change has to start somewhere. And, uh, you know, it took us too long to get this change. But if we can uh, help others, you know, make the change they need to make for their state, you know, uh, we, we, we are here to, you know, to support them in whatever... Uh, we will be able to do. That was Rosa Carreño, a new member of Child Care Providers United. It is Thursday as I'm recording this, and Congress has still done nothing to re-up the $600 additional unemployment per week that expired last week. At roughly the same time, eviction moratoriums expired around the country, creating an entirely predictable and entirely preventable crisis that so far, well, Congress is doing nothing to fix. What the hell? In an election year, if nothing else, you'd think that some of these people would care about, you know, not creating a new Great Depression with a pandemic on top. But it appears they don't. Friend of the show David Dayan at the American Prospect, whose unsanitized daily newsletter is the best source of pandemic news that I read, explains, quote, Don't they have any interest in preventing widespread suffering? In their mind, they have. The suffering on Wall Street has been lifted. On the day that expanded unemployment benefits expired last Friday, the stock market rose. 
it's back up again today. As we know, this is the cause of an ironclad vow from the Federal Reserve to do whatever it takes to protect asset prices, and a $4.5 trillion money cannon facilitated by Congress to back up the promise. The corporate bailout was the rescue Republicans wanted. It was valuable to them, and they were willing to give up a lot to get it. Democrats secured some pretty good terms, but they were all temporary, and now they've mostly expired. The Fed money cannon, you will note, has not. End quote. So the rich got their bailout, their increased profits, at least in the tech and health insurance sectors, and the stock market goes up as unemployment payments go down. I guess because there's a whole lot more desperate people out there willing to just take any job. The $600 extra just about made unemployment an actual livable proposition. In fact, a little factoid that should tell you how pathetic work is in the U.S., one study shows that 68% of those receiving the extra benefits were getting more from them than they did at work. Now, $600 a week, someone nicely pointed out, is 40 hours a week at $15 an hour. In pre-pandemic numbers, something like 42% of Americans made less than $15 an hour. So sure, the unemployment benefit looks pretty generous on that front. Good. It bloody well should. There are repeated studies noting that these unemployment benefits haven't made people, quote, less willing to work, but maybe, frankly, they should. Last night, I moderated a discussion between three healthcare workers about their conditions, and they noted that even in a pandemic with mass unemployment, they have coworkers who are still quitting out of stress, burnout, and fear of illness. Maybe if unemployment benefits remained halfway decent, employers would have to stop treating their workers like crap? This, of course, relates to our main conversation today, so stay tuned for more. Elsewhere in California, Uber and Lyft drivers have been mobilizing, literally, to hold the rideshare industry accountable for the hardships they've suffered amid the pandemic and their exclusion from various public benefits programs, including, most importantly, unemployment insurance. That's because of their lack of employee status. This week, the drivers coordinated protest caravans to demand that the state of California enforce AB5. That's the groundbreaking law, which we've reported on here before, that aims to stop the misclassification of drivers and other gig economy workers as independent contractors. Their action came ahead of a San Francisco Superior Court ruling that could lead to an injunction against Uber and Lyft to block them immediately from allegedly misclassifying their drivers. Also this week, California Labor Commission filed a lawsuit against the rideshare companies claiming that they had stolen more than $1.3 billion in wages from their drivers. The charges were based on claims filed through a wage claim app, which was used by more than 5,000 Uber and Lyft drivers across the state, who said that Uber and Lyft owed them wages and business expenses. Here's rideshare driver and organizer Erica Maghetto giving us a rundown of the campaign to get Uber and Lyft to pay what they owe to the state and to their drivers. So I started with Lyft three and a half years ago. Uh, I also drive for Uber and I've been organizing on a volunteer basis for over a year um, and uh, organizing these actions with Rideshare Drivers United. And I'm really proud to be a part of it. There's a lot of different moving parts with the two-day action that we have going uh, today, uh, three of our uh, groups with Rideshare Drivers United, uh, San Francisco, L.A., and San Diego are all coordinating PPE distribution simultaneously, uh, where we're giving drivers free masks, gloves, 
and hand sanitizer. Um, and we're doing that because uh, Uber and Lyft aren't providing these the, the, this PPE to drivers. And uh, we think that that's just a travesty. Um, there's a lift-store.com that's actually selling PPE to drivers. And uh, we at Rideshare Drivers United just won't stand for that. So if, you know, corporate billionaires aren't going to help the people that enrich them, um, the volunteers of Rideshare Drivers United are, are going to make sure that um, to the best of our ability that, that our drivers are staying safe. Tomorrow, we have a separate action where there will be a caravan. So when our drivers today are receiving their PPE um, care packages, there will be a flyer inside that outlines uh, the caravan action that's happening tomorrow. And um, the biggest message that we're trying to send with that caravan tomorrow is that drivers need PPE and that drivers deserve the same benefits as any other um, worker in the state of California. Um, programs like Workman's Comp and Social Security Disability um, and unemployment insurance benefits were, were given to workers decades ago uh, because they're safety nets that workers need. So to be excluded from these benefits um, is, is just, has been really hard for drivers in this pandemic. Uh, I myself filed my unemployment insurance claim in March and it wasn't until last week that I received my retro retroactive benefits. Now that's five months that it took me sending, uh, you know, emails, sending faxes, sending certified mail, contacting my legislators, uh, that I was finally able to do that. Uh, my partner also filed in March and he's still waiting to have his lift income considered uh, for his benefits. Uh, so, you know, our, our demands are that rideshare drivers be treated like any other worker uh, with regard to, to those benefits uh, that, that they work so hard for. And that, you know, Uber and Lyft and Instacart and all of the other gig companies need to pay their fair share um, into those benefits. So what is the state legislation that would help with this? So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't know if you heard, but today uh, the Labor Commissioner's office announced that they're basically suing uh, Uber and Lyft. Um, uh, Rideshare Drivers United had an action that began, I believe, back in January, where um, we as an organization have helped over 5,600 drivers uh, file wage claims. And so the Labor Commissioner's Office is seeing now that wage theft is a real problem. And so uh, they have filed suit today. So, so that's one of the things that's the, the latest and greatest. Um, we also have AB 1066. Uh, Lorena Gonzalez drafted a bill where she's asking um, for certain criteria be met so that rideshare drivers uh, will be treated like any other workers and to, you know, get us out of this misclassification that's happening to us that's making us slip through all of the cracks of these safety nets that we're supposed to have in place. Um, and there's also Prop 22 in November. Um, Uber and Lyft are trying to exempt themselves 
from labor law uh, for to, until the end of time. And so if Prop 22 passes in November, that could be very devastating for drivers. And so we are running our No on Prop 22 campaign. How does all this intersect with uh, AB5, which was the law that passed that was supposed to stop misclassification? Uber and Lyft Prop 22 is a direct result of our win in AB5. Uh, they are trying to get themselves exempted from AB5. And so obviously, as drivers, we want to vote no on that. Um, all of this, all of the other, you know, Attorney General Bercera's injunction that's happening tomorrow, uh, Lorena Gonzalez's um, uh, AB 1066, um, along with the labor commissioner's announcement today and the three city attorneys that are going after the list, these are all things that are uh, happening in an effort to enforce AB5. Um, we're really hopeful that those efforts uh, will bring better pay, transparency benefits, and a voice that works for drivers. And that's what Rideshare Drivers United is fighting for. That was Erica Megiddo, an organizer with the group Rideshare Drivers United. Teachers are organizing around the country to fight the pressure to reopen schools as normal in the fall. This week in Chicago, our regular listeners who caught Stacey Davis Gates' appearance on our 200th show, or in fact Karen Lewis's on our very first show, will not be surprised to hear, the teachers announced plans to take a strike vote if schools were to be reopened. Hours later, the school district announced that it would be fully remote in the fall. But what's going on with teachers elsewhere? I spoke to Kevin Proson, New York City teacher and part of the organizing effort that forced those schools closed in the spring while the mayor and governor dithered about what's happening in New York City and around the country as teachers use their networks and power that they've been building in recent years to get organized. To start off with, I guess, we've talked about what went on in New York to get the schools closed in the first place because of the coronavirus. But for people who maybe don't know that story, can you give us like a real quick rundown? Sure. In uh, mid-March, as the coronavirus situation was starting to escalate in New York City, uh, there was growing alarm in the New York City school system that the city was not acting quickly enough to... Uh, respond and to close the schools. Uh, right. The week before the schools were closed, uh, we ended the week with uh, growing alarm, uh, not only among teachers, but among parents, uh, and a growing absentee rate among students. Uh, <clears throat> but the week before uh, the sick out started, uh, the story coming out of the DOE that Friday evening was that we were going to be reopening on the following Monday. Uh, and the UFT, the T uh, teachers union, put out a uh, statement that had said that they agreed to disagree with the mayor's decision. Um, that was uh, sort of inadequate for teachers because we were the ones going into these classrooms and we could see we had just a public health disaster on the way, right? So over the weekend, uh, teachers went into organizing mode uh, the way that happened was at uh, a couple specific schools, there were essentially cover-ups of cases of COVID in the building. 
where uh, positive tests were being ignored by the DOE and they were not following their standard protocol that they had laid out where a positive case in the school led to the schools being closed. So teachers at those affected schools where these cover-ups were happening had taken the initiative and begun to organize uh, essentially to call in sick in a united way on Monday and to reach out to the school community to alert parents. The movement of rank-and-file educators, a rank-and-file caucus of the UFT, of which I am a part, uh, we caught wind of these actions um, and reached out to those teachers and invited them to an organizing call for the following day, the Saturday. Uh, and so we had a call that Saturday uh, with uh, over 400 teachers on it from around the city. Uh, we had every borough represented, um, and uh, that call got uh, written up in the press, and uh, the story got out that teachers in New York were planning uh, a, ma uh, quote, mass sick out was the headline, uh, at that point, the UFT came out with some stronger language and said they were going to sue the city over uh, the health and safety risks that were posed at these specific schools. And by that Sunday night, Mayor Bill de Blasio came out and announced that uh, <clears throat> he was going to close the schools uh, on that Monday. So over the course of the weekend, it went from schools were going to open to schools are going to close. And it was the right. actions of New York City uh, school employees that made that happen. Um, and I want to say one thing about that, which is there were a lot of deaths of uh, school workers because of COVID and because of the irresponsible decision yeah. of the city to keep these schools open. So teachers are very angry because we understand that we lost colleagues who were essentially sacrificed for the sake of the uh, political convenience of the mayor and the desire to keep business running in New York City. And so that is the uh, context that teachers are now thinking about the return to school in September. Yeah, and so now um, that we're thinking about the return to schools and teachers around the country are organizing and talking about what to do when places want the schools to reopen, um, I guess, yeah. First of all, what's going on in New York City within the UFT? Uh, right now, uh, the UFT is, official line is that um, it is likely schools will not open in September, that they should not reopen, because it's pretty clear that the Department of Education is not able to adequately provide for the kind of health and safety measures that would be required to create a safe learning environment. Um, you know, and here we're coming to what I think coronavirus has exposed, which is that, uh, you know, these schools are now in the position they're in because of the long-term defunding and disinvestment of public schools. So many of these schools were not healthy or safe buildings to be in before the coronavirus. They had right. poor ventilation. They had lead in the pipes. They had asbestos in the paint. And so the idea that a Department of Education that has allowed its physical infrastructure to decay like that is somehow going to provide adequate ventilation overnight to 1,700 schools, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. And we don't see them doing that. So they have no plan. Uh, the administrators union, the principals, are also very angry. They recently issued a long list of over 100 questions 
very specific questions directed at the DOE about how different aspects of the school day would work while accommodating social distancing. And there have been no adequate answers to that. Uh, Teachers have been organizing very aggressively uh, to initiate uh, campaigns to force the city to close. Uh, Yesterday, there were protests around the country uh, of teachers demanding that schools be uh, not reopened until it's safe. And that's actually about tying into a bigger debate, which is we're not restarting the economy until it's safe. Workers, whether they're teachers or the people who deliver your your food or the people who work in grocery stores, aren't expendable. And they're not going to be sacrificed so business can reopen, because that's ultimately what this is about. Yeah. So one of the things that's been going on for quite a while now is this building of a national network of reformers within teachers unions, of these caucuses that um, like the movement of rank and file educators. Um, And so how is that kind of groundwork that's been laid um, helping in this moment to do this organizing? We're building on the legacy of what is now a decade old movement in the teachers unions to try to transform our unions. And what that means now is that teachers have uh, uh, built or we might say rebuilt powerful institutions that allow them to have a say in this debate. One thing that is very clear here is that there has been a uh, complete vacuum of leadership from both the the administrative side, from the people who run the school system, but also in a lot of the unions that really haven't been, uh, you know, willing to take up the kind of, uh, frankly, militant fight that it's going to take to to, uh, keep the schools, uh, you know, remote until it's safe to return because we're going up against very powerful social forces like the, the Trump administration and all of its backers who badly want uh, school to return no matter what the health consequences are. So uh, it's because teachers have done all this organizing uh, and, and also that teachers have, because of these strikes and because of the coalitions they built over the last decade with parents, they have the political credibility to make what is otherwise a very difficult political argument because parents rightly want their kids uh, back in school for a lot of the right reasons, right? They want them to get a good education. We all know how unsatisfying remote learning is. And if teachers had not built that political credibility, the potential would exist for a very divisive wedge to be driven between teachers and parents over this issue. Yeah. And so how is that working? I mean, have you been in contact with a lot of parents in in your school, in the, the New York City school district in general? I mean, what's the reaction of parents to this whole mess? Well, certainly it's mixed. We're talking about a school system with over a million students and uh, a very, yeah. diverse, uh, very diverse school system. There's obviously going to be a really wide range of opinion. Uh, but we have been working in a close coalition with a lot of parent organizations uh, that uh, we've developed relationships with uh, from previous campaigns, right? These are people we've worked with for good, uh, strong school funding. People we've worked with around reducing the footprint of police in schools and so on. Uh, I should say something about demands here, which is, uh, you know, I think it's important that we make sure our line constantly refers to safety 
and the need to return to safe schools because students can't learn in unsafe environments. If you're sending students back to an unsafe school, your motive is not so they can get back to learning because students don't learn when they're uh, when their physical safety isn't met. And if you send kids into schools that are potentially infection zones, no learning of any quality is going to happen. And we know that. That was Kevin Proson, New York City public school teacher and member of the UFT and the movement of rank and file educators. This pandemic has shown us many things about working and about not working. As I mentioned earlier, the expanded unemployment program in the U.S. and the furlough scheme in the U.K. provided for some people one of their first experiences of freedom from the fear of unemployment. Those plans were temporary, but what about something more permanent? This week, our guest is Barb Jacobson of the Basic Income Network in the U.K., As you'll hear from Barb, she's been a longtime organizer from the Wages for Housework movement to the present, and she's also spent a lot of time dealing with the benefit system, both as a recipient and an advocate for others. Barb and I couldn't resist the opportunity to sit down in a London park for a socially distanced in-person interview, so apologies for a bit of background noise, but I hope you enjoy our conversation. We will get to all of the things with the pandemic shortly, but I wanted Mm. to start out by sort of asking you about your organizing history um, and how that brought you to basic income. Sure. Yeah. Um, I pretty much started out in the 80s with the Wages for Housework campaign and uh, the idea that, that, first of all, that unpaid work was economically valuable and also that, you know, and women are owed something for it. And... um, and that was the, yeah, the kind of frame that I've kind of grown up in. That was my 20s, so I, I, that was my kind of political education. Um, so that that lasted, yeah, that was about nine years or so. And then, I mean, in the meantime, I was also a squatter. So, like, the first place I lived in in London, or the first two places I lived in in London, I squatted. Yeah. So I was kind of part of that. And uh, then also right before I got involved with basic income, I was involved with the fight to keep our local health center open. Mm-hmm. Uh, We were helped in that because it's a really famous building. And so architects come and visit it. All right. So we could really do a kind of cross class thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So we had, you know, the upper middle class. We had working class. We had great parties, probably the best parties I've ever been to (laughs) um, in the course of, of trying to save Finsbury Health Center. And we won that one. Um, That was kind of more by accident than, than design. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a combination of circumstances. I, but I would say that, like, most of, like, the, the things that I've been personally involved with, yep. it's been a matter of holding on until the wind changes, mm-hmm. okay? And not necessarily that you actually force through your agenda. Um, yeah, so so kind of pushing for basic income. I had been working a lot. Well, I was working for a small charity in central London. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be six, seven years ago now. Um, and getting really depressed, you know, I mean, this was what, 2013 and Mm -hmm. a lot of the reforms came in, they took away your right to, um, to immediately get a tribunal if you had a adverse disability decision Mm -hmm. or a, a decision that, 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 that threatened your disability benefits. Mm -hmm. So we were starting to see that, um, 
universal credit was starting to be yeah. put, can't come in. But I mean, what the government actually did was they brought in all the conditions, the conditionality about, you know, looking for work 35 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that or you can't prove you've been doing that, then yeah. they're going to sanction you. Yeah. I mean, and and the the other thing, I mean, you know, the other and, and not just sanction you. This is the thing. It's like they they actually take all of your money. Yeah. Okay, so it's not like you get docked 10% mm-hmm. or you get docked 20%. That's what they do in Germany, all right? right. Um, but in this country, you know, yeah. if you get a sanction, you you know, first of all, you lose the money for two weeks and then you lose it for three months and then you lose it for a year. <laughs> and you're still expected to look for jobs, all right? right. So what's that? Act- what that actually did was that by the time, you know, by sort of 2016, 2017, yeah. Uh, job seekers allowance, there was like a 60% non-uptake rate, mm-hmm. 60% of people yeah. who are eligible, not, yeah. you know, not getting it. And what that means is tons of debt. All right. People are either mm-hmm. credit card debt or, um, you know, maybe they can get a loan, but it's usually mm-hmm. family and friend debt. And then family and friend debt, when you're promising, you know, that you're going to get back on your feet any day now, Mm -hmm. and then you don't, and then they get pissed off, and then you don't have the community around you that you need to actually make life worth living, or, you know, that you can actually barter with or whatever, okay, you know, when you're on a low income like that, so... And we yeah. had a lot of people, you know, they would come to us at the last moment after they'd sort of exhausted every single, they'd maxed their credit cards out, they'd been borrowing mm-hmm. from family and friends, the family would thrown them out, the friends won't talk to them, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. And um, that's, that's one of the stories, I think, that hopefully, I'm hoping that the left will start to really talk about, all right, is the debt, Yeah. all right, and... Yeah, and this whole needs, you know, I mean, there's a lot, uh, that's the thing, there's a lot more to the economy than than people take credit, you know, than mm-hmm. t- people actually realize, yeah. all right? So what, um, you know, what, what this says to me is that, you know, we were right all along back in the 80s, right? right? You know, the entire economy is, is resting on all this unpaid work that, mm-hmm. that particularly women, but not yeah. only women are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just this, you know, vast amount of insecurity, which is just getting worse and worse, you know. Yeah. The family so. and friend debt thing is such an interesting one when you connect it back to the unpaid work mm. that people are doing, right? Mm. That, like, there are all of these informal and unrecognized sort of economic transactions that are happening all over the place. Right. Um, and what that does to interpersonal relationships that's really absolutely you know and that's like that kind of debt isn't tracked by any statistics as far Mm -hmm. as i know about yeah you know um Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a lot of stuff that's happening which economists have no idea yeah okay it was really funny one time this early in the basic income stuff i was going around to a lot of or i was being asked to a lot of meetings of like ngos and charities you know who were kind of thinking about this and stuff and there was uh i went to a presentation of the somebody from the resolution foundation which mm-hmm. is a kind of poverty, kind of slightly right-wing poverty mm-hmm. think tank. Yeah. And he was talking about how the job market had, had just so expanded in the last few years. <laughs> For who? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, there's so many more people employed. And I was like, I don't know. I think, you know, that might be a lot of people who who were working before and they, because of the, ta- you know, because yeah. of the conditionality of, 
whatever benefit, you know, ramping up on whatever benefit they were on. Yeah. Then got the got their job their their boss to make their put their put their job on the books. Mm-hmm. And it was just like this gasp in the room. All right, like. <gasps> You mean people are working under the table? <laughs> oh my! Yeah. You mean every single small business isn't a hundred percent on the up and up? Yeah, no, no well. that's you know exactly right. Yeah. So it was just you know, so they're getting tax credits, which were less less conditional than, right. than thing, and you know, yeah. that meant that they could get tax credits. And do you guys know what rate that's happening? And it was like, ooh, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. You know. <laughs> It's amazing how different you can think about these things when you, you know, well, when your starting people, point yeah. is, yeah, is yeah. somewhere else. Um, and it's not to say that everybody's a benefit fraudster, okay? No, but, of course not. You know, but it's like, yeah, you know, people will do things, you know, to get a bit of cash in when they when their yeah. bills come in, or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's not super uncommon basically no and it's it's fascinating right like universal credit it, it always strikes me as this like it's such an orwellian thing right mm-hmm. it's like this name makes it sound like everybody is getting and like credit like yeah right like that part of it but it, it sounds like oh great it's universal credit like it's yeah. it's you know it's like welfare reform mm-hmm. right there's mm-hmm. big air quotes around that because you all can't see me right. um the way that these things actually just like do away with a system that wasn't great before but was better and at least provided more people more forms of support yeah um but instead you know we get these things that are called reform and universal that are just actually ways to kick more people off of anything so yeah so anyway so six years seven years ago i kind of i was getting really depressed because of the situation with the way the benefit reforms are going i'd been involved with anti-cut stuff for a long Mm -hmm. time um you know obviously we you know, we won our small battle with the, you know, both our small battles with both the housing and healthcare system. But mm-hmm. I mean, the thing was, is we were obviously losing the war. Yeah. All right. And so basic income kind of came along and it was like, oh, there's this other thing. And I had heard about it years and years, like decades before. Yeah. Very vaguely. I hadn't right. really given it kind of a second thought. And mm-hmm. then I had actually heard about it. The next time it kind of came up was in David Graeber's debt books because he mm-hmm. talks about it at the end of debt. And I yeah. was like, oh, this is interesting. But I didn't know what to do. And so then this, because the European Citizens Initiative came up and mm-hmm. somebody who was working for that came over to the UK and wanted to organize something for us to collect signatures and that. Yeah. So I got involved with that. And that's, yeah, so I stopped being depressed, which was a huge bonus for sure. <laughs> and um, eventually, and it took a while for me to dig out, but... But I think the real key thing was actually going to Berlin and meeting people from other countries who were doing this mm-hmm. and realizing that this was actually an international thing. Yeah. And, yeah, um, that this, you know, this isn't just like a UK-centered or, mm-hmm. any, you know, that there was yeah. quite a big deal. And also just, you know, hanging out with the international, you know, with, that's just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, I got a bit addicted to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's it's really so. I mean, yeah, the basic income obviously is is fairly natural on some level to go to from wages for housework. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I guess talk a little bit about for people who are listening to this who haven't put that much thought into this question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sort of why basic income? Well, first of all, because it's paid to the individual. 
all right? So we're not kind of constantly having, you know, you don't have bureaucrats kind of jump, trying to judge what your household is or trying to make you prove, you know, do you sleep with this guy or not? Mm -hmm. You know, there's been, because that's a big deal, actually. Like when you're on the, you know, when you're on benefits in any country almost, mm -hmm. you know, as you're constantly looking over your shoulder, well, can I be with this guy? I mean, I know it's a huge problem in the States. There's songs written about this. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard Tennessee, what was it called? Tennessee... Tennessee welfare blues or something like mm -hmm. that. All right. Yeah. You know, and they talk about the social workers coming over to yeah. check the household. Going you through know. your underwear drawer. Yeah, exactly. That's, and, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. So those, so the individuality and that also, then that re relates back to wages for housework in the sense that, yeah. um, that it would mean that women or any vulnerable person in a household would, you know, would have some means of escape Yeah. before thing or even like before it got so bad. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and also just that it's every individual's, it's a kind of symbolic thing that everybody is worth something, yeah. all right? The unconditionality, absolutely. I mean, why should the state be at all concerned about what anybody's doing, you know? And, you know, and, and just, you know, and you see people getting ill with the conditionality, whether that's, you know, they feel they've got to look for a job or they, you know, they've got to, you know, and I, because I did a lot of disability cases right. up to tribunal while I was, while I was doing that, um, you know, and people having to prove they're sick. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I had a mental health crisis about 20 years ago. At that point, the dole was pretty easy. I, you know, I was on the unemployment benefit at the mm -hmm. time um, and they didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I was able to have a chat with the pigeons in the park i mean they wanted to meet me and so i had a chat with the pigeons in the park whether this would be okay or not pigeon said yeah you know he's just another guy on, a, on the other side of the desk don't worry about it <laughs> and you know and that was it okay mm -hmm. but i mean the idea yeah. of like then you have to categorize yourself you have to get all this you know documentation together um you know and i mean i remember a few friends sort of in the meantime a few friends having to go through you know, labeling themselves as sick or disabled mm -hmm. in a way that they'd never had to before, yeah. you know. And then proving it. Right? And then having to prove it, yeah. And then having to collect all these, you know, letters and, mm -hmm. you know, and then, like, even though you can collect all the letters, but then if you're not taking the medication and it's just, I mean, it's, you know, talk about something to really kind of put people in boxes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and while, and we can talk about this later, but I mean, you know, while there's been a lot of criticism from, from, disabled communities about basic income and whether they would get enough yeah on the other hand you know like if you have that basic amount even if it's not quite enough to live on but if you know you have some kind of basic amount to live on that you don't have to tell any you know you don't have to prove to anybody anything except that you exist right um that is such a huge thing for uh, again particularly people with mental health issues yeah But even even physical issues, you know, that you don't necessarily have to, you know, you can kind of figure out ways to live your life without having to constantly think about, well, I can't do this or I can't do that or I have to, you know, get the doctor to do such and such or if I don't, you know, and have this constant kind of axe kind of hanging over your head mm -hmm. that this is, um, you know, that, that, that you could lose all of your money at once, which yeah. is what, what the government basically brought in in 2013. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, so there's individual, there's unconditional, and then without means test or work requirement, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. have trouble with, oh, well, you'll get it, you'll give it to rich people. Yeah. 
Yeah, you'll give it to rich people, okay? Because they also are part of this fucking society. Sorry, can I swear? Yes. Okay. They're part of this society. They may or may not take it up. We're going to tax the fuck out of them, all right, to make sure that we all have enough in the end. I mean, that's what I'm working for. Yeah. And, you know, and the other thing is that, like any household, the income distribution is not equal, all right? So you can be living, you know, with some guy who's earning 100000 a year. That guy is not necessarily going to be giving you any money. He yeah. might be giving you jewels. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things from the Indian pilot uh, about 10 years ago mm-hmm. was that, you know, they made the whole thing voluntary. You didn't have to take it or not. Yeah. The rich families thought they were too good for this, so they didn't, all right? But within two months, the women came forward. Yeah. Okay, it was like, yes, we have our jewels and we have enough to eat and all this, but I have no money that I can call my own, mm-hmm. which is really free. You know, it's like, no money's not freedom. Okay, yes, we got that. All right. But in the society, yeah. it's really the most equivalent to freedom that we have. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the pilot program in India, because I know a little about it, and I don't know if our listeners, again, will know oh, anything yeah. no, about there was it. A, yeah. there was a, it was probably the most scientific study and, and mm-hmm. probably the closest to actual what we call basic income mm-hmm. um, of any of them, I think. Yeah. Um, and they were replacing what they were replacing. They were replacing the kind of food subsidy, and um, I think there was a fuel subsidy as well. So they replaced those, which are incredibly corrupt programs in India, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, I think, I think there was like a cohort of a thousand villages. I mean, my, mm-hmm. my, my details yeah. on this are yeah. pretty, pretty hazy, but basically there were control villages and there were basic income villages and it was organized, uh, partly a UN thing. I think they funded it yeah. and, um, and Sewa, the self-employed women's association, mm-hmm. So the other thing that they were looking at, as well as basic income, was like, did it it make a difference if the union was there? Uh So because the self-employed, yeah, women's association is is for women in the informal economy. Right. All right. That's who they fight for. And so did it make a difference, you know, like how did the villages respond, you know, if they had a union? So... So, yeah, so they did it for, uh, there were various times, like some places had it for a year, other places had it for a year and a half. Um, But, you know, what they discovered, okay, as well as the rich women coming forward, (laughs) (laughs) women from wealthy families, I should say, coming forward, um, you know, were other things like, you know, so so kids' nutrition went up, Mm -hmm. but also girls and boys, the food that was given to girls and boys equalized interesting okay so they were you know by the end of the study they were growing at the same rate whereas before that their weight was was there was quite a big differential um people you know disabled people were actually brought more into society so they were you know whereas like they had been kind of closed off in some little room or not really part of the family they were able to you know, do some of them did their own businesses. Others, you know, they, they were just welcomed back into the family almost yeah. and kind of treated with much more respect. Another thing that the, the head of Sewa, one thing she said really, I thought was really interesting last time um, I was there last year, because I was in India for the Congress last yeah. year, um, was that before they got their basic income, women and women 
who are economically active in the sense that they make stuff for sale mm -hmm. or they do farming that gets gets sold or that you know they're basically what they're doing is eventually ends up in the market economy yeah. like when asked the question you know are you do are you working yeah they said no no i'm not working you know i mean yeah. they, Da, 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 da. And then when they got their basic income, it's like, yes, I am actually. I'm working a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they kind of couldn't recognize in themselves like how much they were doing mm -hmm. until it was until they got their own money. Because yeah. before, I mean, they would do something, their husbands would go off and sell it, or they'd even sell it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you know how those sorts of family yeah. family enterprises run mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, they didn't consider that that was work. All right, until they had a until they had their basic income, and it was. So, you know, so there were all these like little kind of social things and it was, they were not giving people enough to live on. I mean, I can't remember the exact number, but it yeah. was a very small amount each month. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but it, but just the fact that it was secure. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really something that the yeah. left has to, you know, somehow take into account. All right. The problem yeah. The problem is not so much inequality, okay? We've been going on about inequality for, I don't know, how long. The problem is insecurity, Yeah. okay? And if you don't have a secure income, all right, it really doesn't leave you any headspace to do a whole lot, yeah. okay, besides deal with your existence, okay? And, you know, if you want to look at, like, the source of a lot of the, the dictatorial, right, you know, you just want somebody to make it stop, Right. All right. You want somebody just to make it better. All right. And people can go into all kinds of directions on that, you yeah. know, and they go into fascism or they go, you know, please just just sort my life out. You yeah. know, um, I, I heard uh, again, I'm really bad with names, but there was there was, a, <laughs> there was a fantastic program. I think it was in January. Um, um, this is hell. You know that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And and um, it's a woman and she was talking about this and I was like. It was like light bulbs going off. It was just, you know, because she was basically saying, look, you know, we're, you know, until we kind of solve the kind of security issue, yeah. the left is never going to get its revolution. All right. Because it's, you know, because people, again, they just don't have the bandwidth. They just want somebody to solve the problem. They're going to kick whoever's weaker than them. All right. To see if they can, you know, if that's going to make them feel better. All right. Um, you know, so the, we're not going to get anywhere until we actually solve the issue of, of income security. And that's where I come in on basic income. Um, you know, I, I started out as, oh, well, this would be a great, you know, alternative for welfare. But actually, I've come more to the idea that it's that it's actually everybody's right. Mm -hmm. It's a human right. Yeah. And and it's everybody's share of the economy. You know, we all deserve a share of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, Guy Standing talks about how, you know, 60% of the wealth in the in the UK is inherited. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a lot of something for nothing, guys, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. So this idea that, you know, that kind of particularly middle class academics, you know, obsess about people not working mm -hmm. or the whole thing with, oh, women, it'll institution, you know, like they said about wages for housework, it'll institutionalize women, women in the home. home. Yep. You know, and it's just like they forget that people actually have some kind of agency, all right? You know, and that they will do stuff. And they'd have more agency. And they'd they have could, even more yeah. if they had money that they could count on. You know, yeah. it's it's quite a bizarre... Yeah. I find with the left, I just... I've kind of... Kind of... 
put them to one side, you know. <laughs> I don't worry about them anymore. I used to because I'm from the left and I yeah. spent a lot of time in the early years trying to convince other left groups to, to, to support this. I yeah. just, you know, nah. I've, you know, it's much nicer. I mean, you know, like that's the thing. Like you can walk up to somebody and say, well, do you think you ought to have a, a share in the economy? I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like rather than saying basic income or whatever, right. you know, it's, it's like, well, yeah, I deserve, you know, I do lots of stuff. Yeah, so suddenly we were in this moment in the world where a lot of people had to not work. Right. Where the best thing for the world was, in fact, for most of us to stay home from work. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden we had people like Mitt Romney saying, maybe we need to pay people a basic income. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we discovered that the work that we rely on is unpaid, underpaid, and insecure, largely. Um, those with secure incomes are, you know, who benefit from furlough. Um we probably don't need to do a whole lot of stuff. I mean, there's, you know, I think there's a whole kind of conversation I hope will eventually open. I don't think it's actually opened up yet, but, you know, but I hope will, you know, will open up about, well, what actually needs doing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and the government, I mean, the government was, push, they, you know, they had a furlough scheme, which was 80% of people's salaries. So mm-hmm. obviously if you were on a higher salary, that was better. Right. Um, but then 80% of if you're on minimum wage or the what's the so-called living wage, right? right. That's uh, not so good a deal. Yeah. Um, there were no, the shocking thing was, and and I'm sorry, you know, to have to kind of criticize the TUC on this one, but, but the TUC was really crowing about what a great deal they got people, okay, with this furlough scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, the TUC is the Trade Union Congress. Yes, yeah, the Trade Union Congress was, Sorry, you know, crowing about this afterwards. Mm-hmm. But there were no there, there there were no conditions on employers to keep jobs. Yeah. Absolutely none. Also, it was paid, you know, it had to be paid through the employer. Yeah. So it was, you know, again, it was like something extra that you had to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was actually, there were a lot of employers that, that fired people rather than have to deal with the furlough scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had then however many more people pushed onto universal credit. Yeah. Yeah. So then people were pushed onto universal credit. They kind of sorted out their, their thing about that. I mean, one thing that I'm really happy, we very quickly, when it looked like lockdown was going to happen, um, we very quickly started to push emergency basic income. Right. And that, and several people, it was, yeah, I mean, it's. One would like to have a nice organizing story about this, but actually it's like anarchy in the UK, right? So, <laughs> so like somebody somebody did a, a petition on change that really took off. Somebody else did a petition to Parliament. Neither of those two people were involved with us, you know, mm-hmm. to begin with. Um, yes. But we kind of, you know, found them and yeah. dragged them in. Yeah. Um, and and then people then there was an early day motion so that's like a, a discussion motion it doesn't mm-hmm. actually ever result in in legislation yeah um, but there was you know in about a hundred and so discussion in parliament so many yeah then there was like a couple of letters from MPs floating around so there was one that was signed by 110 MPs and then there was another one signed by 120 something MPs. Um, 
you know, when we all kind of like rediscovered Zoom. So that was, you know, that was <laughs> And now thing. we wish we hadn't. Oh, geez. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> you know, so there were, so there were basically three different groups. So there was us, Basic yeah. Income UK. Mm-hmm. There's the UBI Lab Network, which mm-hmm. started about, oh, I guess three or four years, four years ago, maybe. And they've kind of done, they've done the like local organizing. So there's like different labs in different cities. They've yeah. been sort of pressing their councils to, to pass emergency motions to pilot basic income. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other story we can go into at some point. Um, and then there's a new group called the Basic Income Conversation, mm-hmm. which is via Compass, which is a progressive think tank. And that's actually, so there's the other thing is uh-huh. that that really helped hugely was that we had paid organizers mm-hmm. that we had like in the basic income conversation we had a full-time and a part-time in ubi lab network i think they have three or four part-time people yeah. who are paid to do this all right yeah. and you know just the the level of consistency mm-hmm. um being able you know being a yeah just the fact that you know that the person that you're speaking to, you know, they're not like taking time off their kids or they're taking time off their work in order to do this, I think was a huge, huge benefit. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of kind of nostalgia or that's not quite the word, kind of romanticism about volunteerism, um, which I would really like to dispel. (laughs) I mean, I've been a volunteer the whole time. All right. But, but you know, you, any, you know, and I think Jane says this as well, yeah. you know, that you really have, you don't have a hope in hell unless you have some people that are paid to, paid to do things consistently. Yeah. And that was really, that's, that's what really accelerated things here. So, so all these calls, sorry, I kind of yeah. got ahead of myself. So the, all these calls for basic income at the end of March, yeah. an emergency basic income, I feel very much pushed the government into actually offering something to self-employed people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because because there are certain MPs that wouldn't shut up about it, all right? And that's what you need. Yeah. Some people in there who won't, won't stop. Yeah. Um, but then, so the self-employed income, self-employed income support scheme, right. you couldn't apply. So this was at the end of March. Mm-hmm. You were not allowed to apply for it until right. the end of yeah. May, okay? Right. So, okay, you know, and, but I really do believe that, that it was all the calls for basic income which actually forced mm-hmm. them to do that. Right. And I think that's another thing the left has to think about. All right. Yeah. It's like, you know, that actually, you know, good old Sama James, you know, um, you demand everything. All right. And you get something. Okay? <laughs> right? Yeah. And, no, exactly. you know, exactly. that was one of the things she used to say. And that's certainly been, I think, my, you know, I think that's been our experience. All right. You demand every, you know demand the full whack and then you yeah. get something better rather than kind of being defensive about mm-hmm. the little bits and pieces that we've managed to win along the way. Yeah. And, you know, for anybody who's worried about blowing up the 48 consensus, whatever things right. that we won in the sixties and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're not blowing, you know, it's not about blowing that up. It's about, you know, finding something that's better and that actually the best way to, to defend that stuff is to be demanding a hell of a lot mm-hmm. more. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That you want, you know, that being on the, being on the back foot all the time is not, it's just, you know, you can go back to the art of war and that's not a good strategy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we've known this for thousands of years. 
Right. So we saw things implemented here. We saw in the U.S. like everybody got a twelve hundred dollar check. Mm. Um, they expanded unemployment. Although this week, which we've already talked about on this episode, by the time right. people are listening to this interview, they'll have already heard that. Right. Um, you know, we're in this fight to try to get the six hundred dollar a week um, bit expanded, mm. but. All of this has proven that the government can, in fact, just give people money. Oh, for sure. Absolutely, for sure. <laughs> and it was so funny, you know, because, like, the government kept saying, well, for about basic income, oh, well, we need to target it. Oh, it's too complicated to set up right now. You know, I'm sorry. Everybody everybody of working age has a, has a national insurance number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can't get their bank accounts, then you can bloody do credit cards. That's what they did in parts of Korea. Yeah. You know, they just put a cash card in it created a cash card that people could use and either to get cash out or to actually spend it you know even if it's a bit cobbled together Mm -hmm. combine that with people who are on the different benefits they have all the bank details of all of that and then what okay you know and i mean again you know what some people will say is oh well that leaves out uh people who are not you know don't have legal residence in this country um you know but then you could you know you you could start a fund, all right, of people who don't feel they need their basic income, and we can start a fund to help people. I mean, it, you know, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, on the one hand, it's like people keep saying, well, it's not going to solve everything. And then on the other hand, they expect it to solve everything. Okay, so, you know, like we're not going to necessarily deal with all of the immigration law in one go with basic income um, as much as I'd love to. But... Um. And one of the things that, that I think is interesting, right, as you mentioned, like these mm-hmm. sort of targeted lockdowns and things where we might be slipping in and out of and sort of up and down um, in yeah. varying degrees of lockdown, that like just having a steady amount rather than having these sort of things like this argument that I was having about, you know, phasing the $600 extra unemployment in mm-hmm. and out depending on how high the unemployment rate, like just stuff like that is like we're tying ourselves in knots to find Mm. new and exciting ways to means test things and make them conditional mm. yeah. instead of yeah. just saying here's a baseline mm-hmm. no and this whole thing i mean the whole point like, the other thing people don't really you know like they talk oh well the right wing talks about getting rid of all this bureaucracy blah 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah and it's like actually no it's you know i mean the bureaucracy you can deploy in different ways and i'm sure they yeah. could be much more helpful than they are at the moment <laughs> yes um Right. But really, what you're trying to do is eliminate the bureaucracy for people who actually need the money the most. Yeah. Okay, because at the moment, all right, if you're on the breadline or, you know, in some edge, you know, the kinds of hoops that you have to jump through, yeah. the kinds of forms. And, you know, and I used to deal with people who are actually really well-educated who couldn't figure this out. Right. Okay, so it's not about whether you, you know, you have the mental capacity or anything, okay, to, yeah. in order to deal with this stuff. It's designed to be difficult. It's designed to be difficult, yeah. you know, and it's really designed that, you know, to try to keep as many people out as possible, yeah. you right. know. Um, One of the first people who reached out to me um, when Michelle and I started doing the Belabored Stories series mm-hmm. about people who are working in the pandemic, she worked in the welfare office in the state of Pennsylvania. And she was like, they are calling us essential employees and we have to come in in order to means test people. And she's like, that's ridiculous. Mm. Let me stay home and just give everybody the benefits. Like the fact that like means testing is somehow a thing we have to keep doing Mm. in an office. Oh, it's essential. Otherwise society will collapse. Of course. She was just like, it was so obvious to her that like this was not essential. Mm. 
to be doing that in fact like the thing she was being brought in to work to do mm. was just to deny other people their ability to live and I think this the question of essential work and like you said at the very beginning right that a lot of the essential work that is being done is actually being done unpaid in the home mm-hmm. anyway right um you know how many people have learned because the schools were closed mm just how awful it is to be juggling childcare and your day job. Right. And people are just asking all of these questions about, do I have to go back to work? Do I have to go back to an office? What is the point of any of this? Yeah. But right. So now we're in this moment of, of really um, sort of having had this opportunity to think about work and what we do and why we do it and how we do it and whether we should be able to stop doing it. Um, or to say no to it, right? That, like, if people are being pushed off of income support schemes, the furlough scheme is ending, Mm -hmm. um, and your choice is to go back to an office Mm -hmm. or, you know, nothing, right? These are questions that suddenly people are are thinking really hard about, you know, is this job worth it? Absolutely. Except the other thing is then there's no other work out there. So it's like, well, I have to keep my job because otherwise I'm, you know, again, I'm going to be in stup. So, right. um, you know, I'm hoping there's been some evidence that, that some managers or company owners are realizing that, well, actually, we don't really need these offices so much. And or we don't have to force people to come in five days a week for 40 hours, yeah. um, you know, which are... Certainly in London, where people commute, I mean, their commuting time is ridiculous, you know, anywhere, yeah. often anywhere from an hour to two hours each way, um, you know, so people have been liking that. On the other hand, you know, the other problem with lockdown, of course, is has been a huge rise in domestic violence. So, mm-hmm. you know, women have, in particular, again, have not been able to escape you know, and their partners, if they're abusive partners, you know, have had something to hold over them to keep them, you know, keep them from leaving. So there have been a lot of, a uh, lot of murders. I've been told a friend of mine who works in, in DV, she, she was talking yeah. about that. Yeah. And, you know, it's been like a, I mean, the thing is the benefit system. Oh, and the other thing, a wonderful thing about universal credit is that it's paid to the so-called head of household. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 2020, it's a break, and we're still you know, living and in a I mean, world basically, where we think so head of household. Women were used; they had been getting the child tax credit element, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's now been folded into one payment, along with the rent and everything else. And um, so, domestic abuse had gone up by 25 percent before this. Oh my God! And then it's gone up by another 50 percent since. Okay, so this it's is horrifying. you know, yeah, so. And it's been interesting also, of course, you know, then the whole COVID thing did bring quite a few people that were very much either on the fence or actually anti-basic income. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, right, we can't work. Don't think a job guarantee is going to really work here, will it? You know, Um, or, ooh, we've got to shut down our services anyway. So I guess basic services, you know, what is, what's that going to be? You know, so I think they... I think quite a lot of people have come around to the idea that that cash would be, you know, would be a start. Again, yeah. it's like it's it's not a either or situation, you know. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I find most useful in talking to people in the labor movement—hello, my audience, I love you—is mm. 
about basic income is that if you have something to rely on, you can refuse work when it's mm-hmm. unsafe. You can go on strike more easily. Right. You can take a job and you can leave it. Mm. You know, that these are things that, um, and I think people worry sometimes, like, oh my God, if you make it easier for people to quit jobs, then we'll have a harder time forming unions. Or you mm. can have an easier time forming unions because people won't be so terrified of getting right. fired. Right. That right? like, of course, then yeah. the other thing the left says is, well, this will be, this will just give employers carte blanche to, to not pay as much. And, you know, it's like, or you can just, that's actually how the work, current welfare system works. Right, okay. Exactly. Tax credits were set up in this country to, you know, to, to basically boost low, low wage employment. Right. Okay. Yeah. They were specifically set up that way. It's like, and then you fall off. And I know many people, all right, yeah. who've basically, They've been offered a raise, and they've been actually they've actually had to turn it down yeah. because it would it would push them off that cliff of your of, of tax credits. Yeah. I'm sure there are similar things in the states with the oh, yeah, I mean, with if, the families thing, yeah, with the temp yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, the um, demon. Anyway, yeah, that's the welfare reform. The people yeah. are not used to the alphabet soup. AFDC was aid to families with dependent children, which was the formerly known as welfare. Right. And then yes, temporary assistance for needy families right. is the current system and it's garbage. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things about that too, is that mm. like the way that that was designed, where did all those people end up? Well, they mostly ended up, I mean, cause it was mostly women, right? Mm. It was mostly, well, it was not actually mostly black women, although it was mostly assumed to be mostly mm. black women. Mm. Um, but it was mostly women mm-hmm. and they end up either working in fast food and or doing home care, right? Doing yeah. care work um, for exceedingly low pay. Yeah. And so you end up pushing people again into these, I mean, these gendered types of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I only have a chapter about this in my book. Mm. Uh, but that the way that that works, right, is, is designed to be a ratchet to force people in and out of low paid work. Right. And so... And so yeah, you get that, this really invidious situation where you've got you're you're forcing women out to work to look after some other woman's ch- children, child and then she has to pay, or, or then she know. either has to yeah get her you know get a family member if she has one to look after her kids, or she has to pay. I mean, my somebody. favorite statistic is the one that like if two women who have children just swap children and pay each other, then they can get a tax credit for it. Yeah, but if they stay at home and watch their own child, that's not work. Right, exactly. Uh, exactly. And it is it is such a fascinating thing, right? That just yeah, again, I think I think the question of essential workers mm. and the calling it essential workers or key workers, right, um, has brought so many questions to the fore of what actually is essential work. Mm-hmm. And that is just I don't know, something you've been working on for <laughs> a lot of your adult life, Barb. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Sure. These questions know, I mean, of what work is necessary. What work well, matters. it's just something that we need to really get around the table, and we need, you know, we need to be on the streets about it. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it really, you know, we'll see. I mean, basic income march in the U.S. is is organizing for a um, march of some kind. I don't know. So, I mean, yeah. I don't know how that's going to happen, but on the nineteenth of September. Yeah. And. Um, you know, there'll be places all over the world that'll be doing this. Because that's mm-hmm. the other thing. You know, it's like humanity, what, we have, like, basically three demands. Live in peace, enough to live on, and fix the environment, right? Yeah. So 
Oh yeah, climate you know, change. A nice, yes, a good environment to live in. Okay, <laughs> we can raise our children in. Yeah, um, you know, so there's like three things. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, um, um, you know, people have talked about basic income in the context of climate change, right? Mm. Like Alyssa Battistoni writes about this, wrote about it for Descent, for sure. Um, right, and talking about like what does it mean to say like we need to do a lot less of a lot of things we've been doing. Mm. Um. So. You know, and, and when we talk about Green New Deals and, and job guarantee in the context of a Green New Deal is mm-hmm. like we need to weatherize things, we need to do this. But and Alyssa and, and Kate Aronoff and all of our favorite people um, point out that there are sort of two phases to that, right? There's the, the transition mm-hmm. which needs to happen quickly, and mm-hmm. then there's the different society and how we're going to live in it yeah. is going to have to look different. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, because I think we, we sort of think of basic income as this thing that is very far off a mm. lot of the time, even as these pilot programs are happening and these mm. experiments are happening all over the place. Mm. Um, and then we also realize that, like, the U.S. government could, in fact, cut everybody a $1,200 check fairly quickly and easily, much more easily than a lot of these state unemployment systems. Yeah. We're working, you know, I know people who are just getting their unemployment now who got right. laid off at the beginning of all this. Right. Um, oh so, oh. right. It, it, it yeah. turns out that like the speed with which you can just give people money is something mm. that, you know, we've, we've perhaps underestimated. Yeah. Well, I think that's partly because of the kind of roots of the current movement are very much in academia mm-hmm. and trying to prove the policy rather than demand it. Mm-hmm. rather than organizing for it. And I think we're kind of in a new stage where we're actually organizing for it. Mm-hmm. And I think different things will come out that way. Yeah, um, yeah we really need to build a movement for it and not yeah. not mess around, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the time that the U.S. came the closest, other than Donald Trump's $1,200 checks, mm-hmm. was under Richard Nixon, and it was because there was a massive welfare rights movement saying Absolutely. guaranteed income. Absolutely. Um, and that was not led by academics. It was led by, yeah. you know, women mothers. on welfare. Yeah. yeah. Mothers on welfare, mostly black mothers on welfare. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, saying that this what we are doing is already work. Mm. Give us an income. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. that's, you know, that's where the, yeah, well, that's another discussion. But, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I yeah, no, but to come up. back around to, to this question of wages for housework, right? Mm. That these, this, this organizing from the ground of people who needed money, mm. right? To say that, like, this is, these are the conditions of our lives. And this is, from our analysis of the world, mm. this is what we want. Well, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, you know, like when I was doing wages for housework, we'd be out on the street talking to women sometimes. Yeah. And you know how, I mean, it's, we would get two responses. Okay. Mm-hmm. We would get, where do I sign up? Right. Or we would get, how dare you pay me for something I do for love? All right? That is always an interesting okay, one. Okay. So, and it always looks like, well, you know, that's the conservative woman who, yeah. You know, makes her tea tea for her kids. Pamela and stuff Harris like that. and the Harris versus Quinn case in the U.S. that helped take union rights away from home care workers. She oh, was a okay. mom who was getting government that. money. Right. He, right. She was getting paid mm. to do to take care of her severely disabled son. Right. And she that was basically her argument. And of course, she was backed up by the National Right to Work Foundation and all these sure. right wing whatever. But right. the argument she made was, "This is mm. my family, and I don't want the government getting in the way of my family, and I don't want the union mm. getting in the way of my family." Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean that's a, an argument that has had real 
Yeah. Wait. Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. It's like, but that's what basic income kind of does. It's like, because it's an unconditional payment to everybody, then you're not making any judgment. Like, is this wages for housework or is this, you know, just because you're alive? Is this, Mm -hmm. you know, people can spend the money the way they want to. Yeah. So in terms of um, the organizing, you've, you've got these organizations that are growing, the international networks are mm-hmm. growing, there's organizing for basic income marches. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. How can people get involved? How can people connect if they're here in the UK? How can people connect to things it, in the US? Here in the UK, um, you know, you can get in touch with us, get our newsletter. We generally cover, we've been doing it sort of almost twice a week or twice a month for yeah. the, since the lockdown. Um then the UBI Lab Network, if you look them up, uh, they've got lot, tons of different local groups that are kind of setting up. Yeah. Um, Basic Income Conversation is going to be putting something out to sort of like a toolkit to help people have that conversation, whether it's with friends or family or yeah. your network. Um, if you're involved with some other kind of group, then get them to you know, write to one of us about we support it, you yeah. know. Um, and if there's a local initiative in your area, then please, you know, get onto your counselors and, and get them supporting it. Um, if you're in the U.S., the income movement is kind of the activist wing of things at the moment. Um, they're organizing. They were the ones who initiated and are organizing the, the Basic Income March. So if you also Google Basic Income March, they've got they're developing a map with initiatives that different people are taking in different parts of the country and the world. Yeah. Um, if there's nothing happening, then make it happen. I mean, the, most of the organize, you know, most of the, the the things that really got us going at the beginning of all this COVID crisis were two people, to, you know, two separate individuals taking the initiative to set up petitions. Um, and you know, so there's always something you can do and have the conversation. You know, have a look at our websites that might help. Um, lots of reading to do. And uh, let's get this thing rolling. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Barb Jacobson of Basic Income UK. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is The Low-Wage Mothers of Color Who Want to Become Suburban Moms by Richard Kallenberg in The American Prospect. Kallenberg begins by quoting a tweet from Donald Trump purportedly addressing the white suburbanites of America whom he expects to re-elect him in November. Tweeteth the president, quote, I am happy to inform all the people living in their suburban lifestyle dream, all caps, that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood, unquote. Trump here is referring to the administration's recent dismantling of a critical Obama-era rule that clarified the government's duties to enforce the Fair Housing Act. It basically clarified that, quote, communities receiving federal funds should also take affirmative steps to undo the lasting harm of decades of housing discrimination by coming up with plans to reduce segregation, unquote. Trump's revocation of this rule is very bad news for affordable housing advocates and civil rights advocates, and it's a major setback for generations-long struggles to redress systemic housing discrimination and to desegregate suburban communities. 
But Trump was betting that white suburban moms would be reassured that he was working hard to keep non-white people from moving into their carefully manicured turf. In the same tweet storm, Trump also claimed that Biden's support of legislation to expand affordable housing opportunities meant that he wanted to, quote, abolish suburbs. Ah, if only. In fact, Kallenberg points out that suburban housewives are not all the Levittown matriarchs that Trump grew up with. The people you see in the grainy black and white movies of the Leave it to Beaver era, who created racial covenants to keep black people out and harassed neighbors of color in order to keep their enclaves lily white. Today, the suburbs are increasingly liberal and educated. That's one aspect. And two, they're no longer as white as they used to be. So basically, the suburbs of today are not like those of yesteryear, and there's really no going back, despite what Trump says. That doesn't mean segregation does not continue to be a huge problem in suburban America, but the demographic shifts in suburban regions are evidence that the tide is inevitably turning on 70 years of white exclusion. Kallenberg looks at the flip side of this structural discrimination, showing what it looks like for the working-class Black families who are struggling to get a foothold in better neighborhoods. He talks about Kiara Cornelius, an African-American single mother who works for an insurance company and lived in a rough neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. She, quote, liked the idea of living in one of Columbus's suburban neighborhoods with high-performing public schools, but they were out of her price range. Many Americans would chalk this fact up to the realities of a free market in housing, but in Columbus, as in most of America, where people live and what's affordable has always been socially engineered by government for decades and continues to be today, unquote. Cornelius's family lived in that neighborhood because of entrenched patterns of housing segregation buttressed by zoning laws that have basically operated historically to keep middle-class whites from having to mingle with anyone darker or poorer than them. Unlike the explicitly racist housing covenants, exclusionary zoning policies are more subtle. They perpetuate segregation by restricting housing construction, by ensuring that only stuff that is inaccessible to black and brown people ever gets built. Kallenberg writes that zoning laws have racist origins, but are written in the language of socioeconomic status, which apparently is easier to justify in today's housing market than straight up racial segregation. After the Supreme Court struck down racist covenants in 1948, quote, developers in Columbus and the surrounding suburbs doubled down on socioeconomically restrictive covenants that prohibited land from being used to build houses below a certain price or size, unquote. Paraphrasing the scholar Patricia Burgess, Kallenberg writes, quote, subdivisions aimed at the upper middle class imposed minimum square footage requirements and often banned one-story homes. In other words, they prevented the building of housing stock that would be affordable to black and brown and low-income people. The cruelty of these policies is particularly glaring in light of the Black Lives Matter protests of recent months. While it's true that the protests have been most intense in urban centers— and of course, Trump exploited this to scare white suburban residents with stereotypes of urban places out of control and engulfed in violence. The outrage that is on display in those city streets has everything to do with the suburbs because they reflect in large part the concentration of poverty and disadvantage in cities where black communities have historically been clustered. Trump is trying to sell affluent white voters on the idea that they can keep on trying to barricade their communities from this so-called urban unrest, and that they can keep poor and non-white households from invading their neatly sealed fiefdoms. 
But the Black Lives Matter protests have revealed that those artificial racial borders can no longer hold. Suburbanites also care about systemic racism. Moreover, propping up these artificial divides in society is clearly unsustainable from a social and moral perspective. This doesn't mean desegregating housing alone will end systemic racism. But ensuring that all people have the right to a decent home is key to dismantling the racist superstructures that have kept people separated and relegated Black, Latinx, and other marginalized communities to neighborhoods that are impoverished. We also need to improve housing opportunities in the cities as well, obviously, and ensure that good quality housing stock that is affordable is available everywhere and that these homes are also connected to decent jobs and good public schools and that school funding is not completely contingent on property taxes. But desegregation is the basic fulcrum of all these social changes that need to happen in order to make cities and suburbs healthier, integrated, and socially cohesive communities. As for Cornelius's family, she benefited from a program called Move to Prosper that allowed her to move to a suburban area with a housing subsidy. Her kids then got to attend schools where they are academically challenged and to live in a place where it was safe to play outside. Her quality of life improved markedly, but this program helped only a handful of families. A democratic society would ensure that all working class families are not held back by the zip code they happen to be born in. I know this is a podcast about labor issues, but housing segregation is an issue that is inherently bound up with work because jobs and education and where you live are all manifestations of inequality, of institutionalized racism, and jobs, education, and housing are all key determinants of your future prospects. Just having a decent paying job is not enough. We need a guarantee that everyone can live in a community where they know that their economic contributions are paying off in the long term, where they feel that they are invested in their communities as well, where they feel that they are supported and that their children can thrive. That's another societal project that is critical to empowering working people so that when people like Cornelius return after a long day's work, they know they're coming home to a place where they belong. Remaining with my theme this week of unemployment, the piece I chose for ARG is a piece from Our Friends at Labor Notes by Jake Douglas and Ben Reynolds about unemployed restaurant workers organizing. The piece is titled, We Feed You, Don't Let Us Starve, Restaurant Workers Mobilize to Extend Unemployment Benefits. Organizing the unemployed is going to be a key issue going forward, pressure to force Congress to act and local governments, many of whose unemployment systems are a shambles unfit for purpose at the best of times, and as well, organizing to press employers who are looking to take advantage of a newly massive reserve army of labor to lower wages and conditions. So it's good to read about some efforts to do just that. Douglas and Reynolds write, quote, Unionized airline workers lobbied for and won from Congress a $50 billion airline bailout that included $29 billion in grants to keep workers on the payroll through September 30th. But restaurant workers had to make do with just the Paycheck Protection Program, which was intended to provide federal loans to businesses that retained their workers. This was little more than a Band-Aid. Nevertheless, PPP temporarily reimbursed the payroll of millions of restaurant workers. Congress has signaled this program could expire, too. If the payroll money dries up, a fresh wave of layoffs will follow. Most states have let restaurants partially reopen, but even with the easing of restrictions, the customers are not coming back in the numbers needed to cover fixed costs like rent. The reason is simple. It is just not safe to eat at a restaurant in a pandemic. Without indoor dining, most are operating well below capacity. Half of all restaurants are on track to close their doors for good. Absent massive relief, millions of permanent layoffs are likely. End quote. 
So what's it going to take to save the restaurants? Restaurant work is a highly casualized field with a little over 1% union density. And those few unionized shops, the authors note, are in often hotels or airports as part of larger bargaining units. But the pandemic could change some of this. Douglas and Reynolds note, quote, the pandemic, however, abruptly threw everyone in the industry into the same conditions. An upsurge in activity ensued. Restaurant employees spontaneously created dozens of local Facebook groups, laid off workers in the Democratic Socialists of America, launched a national restaurant organizing project. The New Orleans Fair Hospitality Fund and Chicago restaurant workers formed strong local structures. In Colorado, Unite Here Local 23 and Denver DSA started Restaurant Workers United, RWU, end quote. And what are all these groups doing? They explain, quote, RWU is using online tools to find the issues felt deeply by most workers and to recruit them. It has circulated several petitions nationally to build a list of thousands. Starting from a small core, volunteers have called through it weekly. They ask workers about their struggles and invite them to join virtual meetings. The list quickly outstripped the Colorado team's capacity, so RWU has partnered with ROP and CRW to help smaller groups start organizing the people who sign up in their cities. This empowers local worker organizers who get weekly support and trainings on how to write organizing wraps, run meetings, and plan direct actions. The goal is to build as big a coalition of strong restaurant worker groups as possible nationwide. On July 24th, restaurant workers held their first nationally coordinated day of action in six cities to demand that Congress extend the $600. In Boise, Idaho, Pie Hole Pizzeria employees took a break from their weeks-long picket to march down the main bar street. In Denver, 40 workers and supporters led a mock funeral procession to Senator Cory Gardner's office behind a banner that said, We feed you, don't let us starve. 50 people rallied and heard from impacted workers in front of congressional offices in Chicago. Dozens took action in Austin, Dallas, and New York City with protests, banner drops, and more. End quote. And I should just say that as a former Denver and New Orleans restaurant worker, it does my heart good to hear that those cities are leading this fight. Anyway, this is good news, particularly as everything else looks bleak. Worker organizing, we should remember, grew rather than falling during the Great Depression, and with the twin pressures of housing and wage loss falling on working people right now, it's really heartening to hear that some workers are pulling together unemployed workers to fight. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on unemployment and reopening schools, on care workers' unions and the unemployed organizing, and everyone else working in a pandemic. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneberg for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our shiny new Patreon page with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you don't have the spare cash right now, believe me, we understand. I've spent this entire episode talking about unemployment. But if you do and you aren't spending it on restaurant meals or anything, and you haven't joined up yet, there are some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier. And as always, you can find out more about everything we've talked about today on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, 
where Michelle and I are doing regular interviews with workers all over the world about the conditions they face as we reopen and reclose, wait for congressional action, and organize. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belaboredatdissentmagazine.org. If you're caring for children or fighting for fair pay or struggling on unemployment right now, you can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.